To the Lions of Liberty podcast. Here is your host, your guide, your shining beacon of liberty, Mark Claire. Hey, everybody. You found yourself once again, or possibly for the first time, tuned into this, the Lions of Liberty podcast. And however you found this thing, whether it's over from the Daily Paul, or maybe just because you're my friend, or you're my parents. <laughs> or if you stumbled upon this thing by accident, I am truly grateful for your ears being over on the other end of this microphone. Because if they weren't there, there'd be no reason for me to do this. There'd be no reason for my guests to come on and spend their time talking to me. Now, maybe we could still have a little chat off the air for our own benefit. I, I greatly enjoy talking to my guests. But, you know, we have this terrific little thing called the internet now. That enables us to get our views out there unlike any time before in the history of the world. Think about that for a minute. You know, never before until the last maybe 10, 15 years could the average man on the street instantly communicate with people all over the world. And in my view, it would be a complete waste of this wonderful modern invention if we didn't put it to good use. And as far as this guy goes... I can't think of a much better use than trying to advocate for a world with greater individual liberty, with more justice, with greater peace and prosperity for all mankind. You may say I'm a dreamer, but I'm not the only one. I am not the only one. It's true. Because my guest today is another one. He has spent his career and his life working to advance the ideas of liberty. He is a documentary producer as well as a political journalist, having conducted interviews with many well-known politicians such as Nancy Pelosi, Harry Reid, Joe Biden, and many others using the Socratic method. We'll discuss that in a bit. He's also recently been involved in several online debates arguing for the minarchist or limited government side of the anarchy versus minarchy debate, taking on a few prominent anarchists, including a couple past guests on this show, Stefan Kinsella and Walter Block. And of course, to check out our past interviews, you can head over to the full archive at lionsofliberty.com slash podcast. I've been a big fan of his for a long time, and I'm thrilled to be speaking today with Jan Helfeld. Welcome to the Lions of Liberty podcast. Thank you, Mark. It's a pleasure being on your show. Well, Dan, I really appreciate you coming on today. Uh, you know, like I said, I've been a big fan of your interviews for a number of years. Uh, I think the first one I, I saw is that um, the Harry Reid interview where he tried to claim that taxes are voluntary. I really enjoyed that one. Um, that really got me rolling on, on watching all of your interviews. And, you know, I think you really do a great job of trying to draw out inconsistencies and contradictions from these people, particularly politicians. So, you know, I'd like to commend you for the work you've done in that regard. Now, for those in my audience not familiar with your work, why don't you just tell us a little bit about how your journey got started? How did you first get started with your journalistic career? And what led you to start doing these kind of Socratic method interviews? Well, I was unsatisfied with the interviews and uh, discussions that I saw on TV and I had the opportunity to uh, get involved in production, TV production work, and uh, finally had my own show, which was called What's Your Philosophy? I thought that it was extremely interesting and uh, satisfying to investigate 
politicians or intellectual or a journalist thinking. And I use a Socratic interviewing technique, which is similar to what Socrates did 2,500 years ago, where he would lead somebody to the realization that their position was self-refuting because it was self-contradictory. And I've been battling, as you said, the uh, status for many years, decades. I continue to do so now and plan to do so in the future, even though I've been getting a lot of flack from a lot of anarchists. <laughs> <laughs> no, you don't say? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> they're really angry at me. I, I don't understand because Block said that we were common brothers in the fight for freedom. <laughs> we were just 5% apart, but <laughs> doesn't seem so from the reactions. I guess maybe it's because, um, if I don't say so myself, a fierce debater. Mm -hmm. And even though I'm completely sold on the idea to have debates, I have to admit that in practice, I've lost a lot of friendships because I've been willing to engage in debates. It's always perplexing to me why and how this happens. But um, it seems like sometimes your differences are accentuated when you uh, have debates and people just uh, view you as an enemy and get angry at you. Well, sure. I mean, if you take, say, you and Walter Block and, and put you guys on one side of a room and then put Nancy Pelosi and Harry Reid and these other guys on the other side, I mean, it, it's very clear what side is the liberty side of that room. But then if you just put you on one side and Walter Block on the other side, that's when you know nobody else is in the room. Well, that's when a lot of the differences start coming out. But uh, I think one of the most important things that, you know, people that lean towards liberty or, you know, respect individual rights or have that general viewpoint, I think the absolute most important thing we can do is engage in meaningful conversation, engage in meaningful debate, and try to sort out our differences because it's really difficult to present a worldview to people when there's so many people that have differences on what that exact worldview should be. So that's something I definitely want to get in with you a little bit more um, as we go through this interview. But I also want to focus on how you got started a little bit more with these interviews and with actually landing these politicians, getting them in the room with you. How did you first go about convincing these people that you're someone they should take the time out to sit down with, this guy Jan Helfield, who a lot of them probably had never heard of before? How do you go about getting these guys to actually sit down with the cameras and you and, and do the interview? Well, uh... Every case is not exactly the same. I think the main thing you have to understand is that uh, I've had a few different TV shows and radio shows in the past, and I am a persistent person, and I've invited a lot of people a lot of different times. So if you have a very large universe and you have somebody who is persistent and somebody who does have a platform like yourself, you know, it's possible to get good names. Now, some good names help get other good names. Right. So, for example, when I interviewed Joe Biden, he really liked the interview, and he had agreed to do two interviews, and he was so enthralled with the interviews that he bumped his next appointment and did a third one. Wow. Then he wrote me a nice letter which I promptly used to get more interviews. So that's kind of like an example. Right, and then you can say, hey, look, Joe Biden likes me, so hey, how bad could I be, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, he, he said that uh, not only had he enjoyed it, but he had learned a lot. Well, okay, so then 
that's a letter from the senator. He was a senator at the time, not a vice president. And then uh, you take it from there and try to build on that. Yeah, it's funny you mentioned how you just need to start putting yourself out there. Because, I mean, I started this podcast about six months ago, and I didn't really know any any other prominent libertarians on a personal level at all. But I just started emailing people and saying, I'm Mark Claire. This is what I want to do. I want to bring you in for an interview. And, you know, if you send that email to enough people, a lot of them are interested in talking about this stuff. So they do come on the show. And like you said, once you get a few of them in, you can say, well, hey, Walter Block came on the show. So how bad could I be? That that kind of thing. And that's the same thing I did with you. I emailed you and said, hey, I'm, I'm doing this show. Would you like to come on? These other people came on and, and here we are today. So, you know, being persistent and really not being afraid to reach out to people because a lot of people ask, how do you do this? How do you get all these guys in your show? I mean, it, it's not magic. I just I just ask. And then, you know, a lot of them say yes. Some of them don't respond. It's just the way things work out. How has technology changed the way in which you conduct these interviews? Because, I, I mean, I know when you first started, it was most of the stuff was all on local uh, cable access and that kind of thing. But now, thanks to the Internet, you can just upload these things on YouTube, blasting out to millions of people and... Suddenly, you don't have to. You're not, you're not sitting at home, you know, packaging up tapes and sending them out and all that other stuff that you probably had to do before. At the same time, now people have seen Jan Hellfield a lot more. So, you know, like I said, it might be more. Maybe some of these people actually have seen your interview style. Might be more reluctant. I don't know if you've had more difficulty because of that. How have you seen the technology shaping the way you conduct these interviews, shaping the way you land them? Well, the, you know, at, back in the day, actually, when I started, we were using one-inch uh, tape. TV tape, mm-hmm. one inch. There were very big reels, like uh, movie reels. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. I started off in the broadcast industry about 15 years ago, and they were still a few times we had to use those giant those giant one-inch reels. Well, but, uh, you, you know, and talking about millions, you know, uh, my uh, interview with Harry Reid, the one that first got you interested, it has uh, more than uh, 2 million views. Uh, and... It has uh, two million views on some other uh, internet channel uh, called Ali Drake. So he he stole the interview, put it on on his channel, <laughs> and he's he's been better at promoting it than I have. <laughs> and on my channel, it only has about two hundred and fifty thousand views. You know, so that's some of the things that happen on the internet, as opposed to when you have a show and on tape. Uh, I think altogether, the you know, on balance. That's a basic important concept in political theory when evaluating systems, the concept of on balance, what's better. <laughs> it's been a, a good thing. It's reduced the cost, the Internet, the development, the possibility of uh, having direct access to viewers. I think it's been positive on balance. So in general, I'm, I'm happy about it. Uh, as far as... Um, People can find out who I am easier, so it's less likely that they will do the interview without knowing me. It still happens. Right, I mean, they can just type your name into Google, and now, now they know who you are immediately. Yeah, a lot of stuff. It's been years since I last typed my name into Google, but the last time I did, I was kind of surprised. There was a lot of stuff there. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I think it's good, and um, I've been able to reduce my costs quite a bit. No, I haven't been having to deal with all these tapes and stuff, which I hated. 
of all the interviews you've done, are there any that kind of stand out the most to you? Do you have a favorite or maybe, you know, one that's just particularly relevant or, you know, one that I know the Harry Reid one went viral really quickly, but are there any others that kind of blew up that maybe you didn't expect? Or what? Which ones stand out the most to you? One of the most dramatic interviews that I did was with Congressman Esteban Torres, where he uh, stole the tape and uh, had me arrested by making a false accusation that I had stolen a federal document which uh, was the my copy of the contract he had signed. That's the document that he claimed that I had stolen. Because <laughs> his signature's on it, it becomes federal, I guess, huh? Yeah, well, uh, so he, he claimed that that was a, a federal document uh, because I had a copy of him agreeing to do the interview. <laughs> <laughs> so that's pretty dramatic, and I thought it was a great interview in that what's happening... Uh, on camera reflects the discussion that's going on in the abstract about initiating physical force and whether it's right or wrong. And it happened right there. And uh, and the congressman was alert enough to realize, hey, yeah, that's what we were talking about. <laughs> <laughs> you were just asking me about physical just... force, and then we initiated it on you. Yeah, we're, yeah, we were just discussing this issue. Well, maybe, maybe that's where he got the idea. He said, hey, maybe I can no. just initiate force and get this guy out of my office. <laughs> So uh, that I think that's a great interview. To, uh, I, I mean, I, I don't think you can beat that as far as uh, dramatic and uh, exciting. Uh, you know, uh, I'll tell you, the, the thing that grabs my attention the most is something that happened in a lot of my interviews. George Will is one where when you keep digging down, you find a big flawed philosophies being the cause of the difference that you have when you're discussing an issue. So I just put up a, a recent interview with um, David Webb, Fox News commentator. He's you know on the shows regularly, uh, and he has his own radio show. And so ultimately, when I caught him in the contradiction using the Socratic interviewing technique, he starts to argue that two contradictory propositions can both be true. Now, that, to me, is the height of epistemological perversity. And that's like a bankrupt position. Once you argue that, and that's what George Will ultimately argued, that reality was contradictory and therefore, you know, you could contradict yourself and uh, still be logical. Um, there isn't anything worse. That's the bottom of the barrel. And so I tend to focus on differences in epistemology. So, for example, in the block debate, he was of the view that certain questions he didn't have to answer or should not be asked or were illegitimate. And um, I... I think uh, within the context of a debate, you know, if it's, uh, all the, you should answer all the questions. Now, if you ask me what are the numbers of your bank account, I wouldn't answer. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Obviously, it has to be relevant to the issue at hand. Well, no, but uh, it, it, it doesn't have to be immediately relevant. The other guy might not see the relevance, but if you're in the general field, and this is another thing that surprised me, a lot of people don't realize that political theory is just a subdivision of ethics. Absolutely. So all political theorists 
ultimately, their goal is to prove to you that if you organize socially and politically this way, X way, you will get a lot of goodness. Things will be good. It will be good for you. It'll be a good situation. This is what will produce goodness. So then the obvious question is, well, well, exactly what do you mean by goodness? That I have to slit my throat or I'm, how am I going to live or what's the situation? So then you have to, so ethical questions, uh, your ethical underpinnings and your ultimate value, which is a key issue in ethics, is always relevant. And so what you think is good is fundamentally uh, important. If if you have a difference, say like the terrorists, they think it's good to you know, be martyrs and end up with the seven virgins in the in heaven. Well, of course, well, then it makes a lot of sense to go, uh, you know, ram a plane into a building. But uh, I don't think that uh, it would be good for me to ram any plane into any building because, uh, you know, my ultimate end is not to think that I'm going to be with the seven virgins in the sky. So those two differences, you know, like if you have a difference in epistemology where you think certain, you, you don't have to answer questions uh, and you don't realize that uh, some questions might not appear to be relevant to you, but they're in the field and whether you see the relevance or not, you've got to answer them. On the one hand, or if you think that you don't have to relate your political theory to any ethical concepts and that you can just start political theory in a vacuum and um, take it from there, uh, those are two very important differences philosophically. Sure, I mean... That is... Yeah, go ahead. I was just going to say, I mean, I, I agree with you completely. I mean, I think... I try to focus on philosophy on this show. Or, I mean, whenever I talk about a topic, I try to get break it back down to the originating philosophy. Where does it come from? What what kind of meaning do we get to get to this point? And, you know, that's why I think these debates that you guys are having are, are important. I mean, I think it's important that we get this stuff out there and you know that that's why I want to talk to you about your philosophy a little bit. I know you you are taking the minarchist position on this kind of anarchy versus minarchy debate. You've put yourself out there with Stefan Kinsella, with Walter Block, Larkin Rose. You know, so I'd like to kind of give you the opportunity to fully explain why. Don't forget Molyneux. Molyneux, yeah, I saw that, that was a couple of years ago, isn't that right? I, and I, I, I did an interview with Molyneux, but he won't do an interview with me. <laughs> <laughs> he interviewed me before we had the debate. Before the debate. That's right. Oh, okay. That was a separate show of his? Yeah, he did a show where he interviewed me. Why don't you just explain to everybody, you know, I think it pretty much brings anger up on either side. Whenever I see this kind of anarchy, minarchy debate out there, it seems to really fire people up. Like you mentioned earlier, you you think you might have lost some friends and that kind of thing. And I hope none of this stuff is worth losing friends over because I think we should all be friends, people that sort of lean towards liberty or at least have a cursory respect for individual rights, but it, but it's important we sort this stuff out. Yeah, especially the people that are working for it and that are sure. promoting it and are, are, you know, actively engaged in protecting other people's rights and trying to uh, reduce the infringements of rights by the politicians or the nonsense by the journalists that lead to the infringement of the rights. So why do you exactly consider yourself a minarchist? What, what, first of all, what do you mean by that? Because I think there might be some people that are minarchists that have one view of what that is, 
and other people have another. So I don't want to just label you a minarchist right. and have that, you know, have that be generically your view. So why don't you explain a what you believe, you know, what you mean when you say minarchist, and why philosophically you have been you've led yourself to that position. Uh, first off, I don't actually even use that term minarchist because uh, okay. the people on uh, my side of the uh, debate uh, don't use the term minarchist because we don't consider ourselves to be baby anarchists. In other words, uh, <laughs> just a, a little something off anarchy. No, right, right. The, the what I and I don't know if you used saw it in the titles of the debate, but I'm in favor of limited government. Limited government for the purpose of defending the individual rights of of the citizens. So I think that yes, we do need a government in order to protect the individual rights of the citizens. And you know, I'm in good company, and this is what uh, Thomas Jefferson said in the Declaration of Independence, and that's why I'm so grateful to him because he succinctly identified what is the proper function of government, which is as he said in his words, to secure these rights, governments are constituted. That tells you clearly what the purpose of government is, and once you identify what the purpose is, which is only to secure the individual rights of the citizens, and in his phraseology, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, but in the general framework of the, of the culture at the time, life, liberty, and property. Once you realize what that is, what is the proper function, then you can distinguish what are the improper functions. So anytime you say the government should do this, in my view, you have to tie it back to how that is going to protect my right to life, liberty, or, or property. You can't make that connection, then it's not a proper function. And then the Constitution pretty much comes close to that ideal. Now, it's not perfect. The Constitution, I don't agree with everything in the Constitution, but it's the closest document that we've had. And if you look at the Constitution and you said, well, what kind of government are they proposing here, these gentlemen? Uh, you would say, well, they're proposing a limited, a limited government. And uh, the limitations on the power of the government and the Bill of Rights and uh, in the specification of what the powers are is the essence of what that document is. And that's another point that is sometimes missed. Now, it is not exactly perfectly limited government, but it's so close, it's close enough to it, and it was so, such a big difference that, in my view, it's responsible for the great success and prosperity of millions of people. And I'm eternally grateful to these founding fathers for having done this and risked their lives to do it Whereas a lot of other people, like Mr. Dr. Block, he thinks it's been a horrible thing and that the United States has perpetuated innumerable sins and uh, atrocities, etc. And on balance, it's just been horrible. Well, no, I, I think it's been very good. Now, to the extent that we have digressed from limited government, well, to that extent, I am starting to disagree. Now, right now, we're in a very bad situation where we have a mixed political theory, a mixed economy. Some parts are okay, some parts are pretty bad. But still, it's a matter of degree. And by the way, it could get much worse. And so I'm trying to uh, work to reduce the improper function of government, to reduce the improper effects, 
in both foreign policy and domestic policy. That's uh, basically, um, I guess, my perspective. Now, if you wanted to me to get more deep into the ethics or epistemology or metaphysics of it, I, I could if you wanted. But from a perspective of political theory, that's what I, uh, I guess that expresses my view. So what would you say to people that, you know, they, they might have just heard your diatribe there and they'll say, yeah, I, ideally, I, I think diatribe, I agree with oh what... Oh, I, I don't mean that in a bad way. Don't get me wrong. <laughs> okay. Go ahead with the yeah. diatribe. <laughs> Take it with a grain of salt. Okay. Um, yeah, but I mean, I think a lot of people out there might say, you know, well, Jan, you know, I, I agree with what you're saying. In theory, I think, you know, it, it would be fantastic if our government would remain limited to only protecting our natural rights, only protecting our, our life, our liberty, our property, and that kind of thing. But look at what happened here with the Constitution. It was intended to limit the government. Many people will then say, well, you know, it's degenerated into this, you know, somewhat tyrannical government we have today in many ways. They're heavily involved in medical care. They have military bases are all around the world. Uh, they're doing so many things that are... To a welfare state, yeah. Yeah, exactly. I mean, all these things that are clearly against the Constitution, against the original intent, and yet they're happening anyway. So, you know, their argument might be, well, you know, if... As much as we might agree with your idea here, it just doesn't work. So what's your response to that? I mean, how do you think the citizens can sort of keep a government that really does only limit itself to protection of rights, protection of property, and that sort of thing? Well, you know, I think that the uh, ultimate answer, and uh, by the way, I, I do agree that we have deviated tremendously from the original perspective. The ultimate answer is that the government depends on the citizens' understanding and uh, that the fact that defending their own individual rights and the proper function of government is based on defending other people's individual rights and their and it affects the the improper function of government on uh, effects on their lives. So there is no political system that is. Uh, has a, a democratic component, or even any other, I think, that will work well if the people don't understand and aren't willing to take some time, some amount of energy, to protect and enforce their view of what is right. So, so for example, here in the United States, we haven't had a coup d'etat, right? Well, and then you noticed in a lot of other countries, they do. Right? Yeah, just, just in Thailand last week. Yeah, they exactly. Not, well, maybe they're 20th or something. Well, what is the difference? The difference is that the, I mean, the American army is, is quite strong enough to take over everything and become extremely tyrannical and uh, really put the nails to uh, Mr. Block or whoever. <laughs> <laughs> really feel the pain. Uh, and so, but they don't. Now, why don't they? Because they don't, there are some people in the military that might want to do that, but there's not enough. There's still enough people that believe in the rule of law and believe that it is improper for the army to take over the government and do not believe in direct predation uh, of that sort, so that it doesn't happen. If some general wanted to try to do it, the troops wouldn't fire on the citizens. They, they wouldn't do it. They don't believe in it. So ultimately, you need the citizens to assume some amount of responsibility. I think that almost all the founding fathers said that you had to be vigilant of your liberty and 
that power corrupts and all these things are true. So the answer to your question ultimately is citizen participation and involvement in protecting the individual rights of all the citizens, not just their own, and the realization that that's in their self-interest. I think a lot of the problem is that a lot of people don't realize that it's in their own self-interest to protect other people's individual rights. Almost everywhere in the world, all over the world, people don't make that connection. And and so they complain a lot about when their own rights are, are violated, but if somebody else's rights are violated, they don't really care much. And that's why they're not really committed to other people's individual rights. So whenever uh, you select randomly some leader from their uh, community, he turns into a tyrant because he really was not committed to protect everybody's rights. He just was unhappy that he was getting squeezed. Anyway, so that's part of it. To the extent that you have explicit laws, like a constitution, like we do, that helps a lot. That You have a framework, a legal framework, that uh, makes sense. A lot of nations, a lot of countries, they have these constitutions that are very contradictory. You know, they have uh, individual rights, but then they have economic rights, and then these two things contradict each other, so the whole document doesn't make any sense at all. And so, no wonder they're all confused. They, they don't even have a, a clear framework from which to work from. If you have citizens involved and you have the journalists doing their job, which they aren't, well, you have a chance to expose the, the tyranny, expose the abuses, and uh, throw the bastards out when uh, in elections and get rid of them and, and improve the situation. And so, as I said before, it's a matter of degree, and it's about bringing the government back in line to its limited government function as much as possible. And so that's what I, I, I'm working at, and uh, that's what I try to do. And uh, I'm happy that I don't have to uh, grab a machine gun and uh, <laughs> fight uh, with the bullets. Well, I'm happy, too, because I don't think it would be a pretty picture, Jan Hellfield versus the world or, or Jan Hellfield right, versus right. the U.S. government. <laughs> right. <laughs> we'll be back after a little break. Do you want your kids to meet the champion of the Constitution? What if there was an illustrated book that introduced libertarianism to you through the story of Ron Paul's amazing life? What if this biography breaks down complex concepts like Austrian economic theory, the dangers of the Federal Reserve, blowback, and non-interventionist foreign policy? What if I told you this book is real and available? What if I told you that school libraries accept donations? What if you donate a copy to your local school library and give hundreds of youth the opportunity to meet Ron Paul? What if you don't? Who will? The book is Meet Ron Paul, and you can get your copy today at lionsofliberty.com slash meetronpaul. As Ron Paul has said, there can be no revolution without a revolution in education. Meet Ron Paul and keep the liberty movement moving. Chris Rossini's new book, Set Money Free. Set Money Free. With a special forward written by Ron Paul. Set Money Free. Everything you need to know about the Federal Reserve in less than 200 pages. Available this 4th of July. Set Money Free. 
Chris Rossini's Set Money Free. Hey guys, Mark Claire here, lionsofliberty.com, where we strive to advance the ideas of liberty daily. We bring you the Morning Roar! That's right, every Monday to Friday we'll have a brand new edition of the Morning Roar, where we provide a roundup of some news stories that you may not find in the mainstream media, or even in your typical social media news feed. We find stories that relate to the ideas of liberty and provide you with our liberty perspective on them. Every Monday, we have our longest-running feature, Mondays with Murray, named after the great libertarian Murray Rothbard, where we'll examine an article or an excerpt from his works and help convey his view, along with our little spin as well. We wrap it all up every Friday with Felony Friday, where our own John Odermatt goes out and takes a look at some sort of felony. There's felonies committed every day, you know, whether it's a felony committed by the police, a politician, or even an average citizen. You can find all of this and so much more over at LionsOfLiberty.com, advancing the ideas of liberty daily. This is Glenn Jacobs, and you're listening to the Lions of Liberty podcast. Here is your host, your guide, your shining beacon of liberty, Mark Clare. One thing you said there, also, you know, talking about how people not respecting, you know, they, they are upset when their own rights are violated, but not so much when other people's rights are violated, because I see that happen so much here today. I mean, look at the war on drugs. Look at all the, you know, the police state. I see so much apathy from people. I mean, I, I get personally outraged when I see a 19-year-old kid, like just last week, this 19-year-old kid, you know, gets busted for uh, hash brownies, and now he's going to jail possibly for life. His life is over. I mean, that, that's the kind of stuff that upsets me. But it's not affecting me directly. But I see so many people today, or I, I don't see them, I guess, is more likely. I, I'm not hearing the voices I that just don't understand the rights of other people or they don't care to or that kind of thing. So I, I think you're right when you say no matter what kind of government or system you have or advocate for, if you don't have people that really understand individual rights and, and the value of that, not just for themselves but for all of mankind, well, we're going to have problems. And that's why I – that's one of the reasons I do this show and that's one of the reasons that I think you are out there doing the kind of interviews that you're doing and that kind of thing. I want to stress one important point, I yeah, think, absolutely. which is uh, of what I said. They don't see the connection between def- defending other people's individual rights and their own self-interest. Uh-huh. See, that's the key point. I can make that demonstration to a person if they're interested, and, and, but if you don't see that connection, you'll be less motivated because your uh, motivation will be somewhat altruistic. And, well, I just want to help humanity, da, da, which is a nice feeling and a an, uh, you know, brotherly love for the uh, rest of the world. I was a peace and love child myself. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, um, but... You have to see what really commits people, in my view, is to make that connection between defending the individual rights of other people and their own self-interest, why that's in their self-interest. That's the thing. And a lot of people don't see it, and I, but I see it clear as day. I see the ball rolling, and I say, well, sooner or later, I'm going to be the victim of this... Uh, monster that, you know, is uh, violating these people's rights and these people in this area and that area for, you know, in so many ways. So that's why I put up a fight. Sure. I mean, if you support a system that 
violates the rights of other individuals, well, guess what? You're an individual too. So at some point, that system is going to violate you. Or maybe maybe it won't if you're the president or somebody like that, somebody on top. But for the most part... I think that's another uh, important point which people don't realize, that uh, morality and practicality are the same. There's not a, a dichotomy between what is practical and what is moral. So my moral principles... I don't violate because violating them would be very impractical. They would harm me. It would be against my self-interest. Whereas many people's ethics, they find themselves in a conflict between what's practical to do and what's moral. And they assume that that has to be the case. In my view, it's just that they haven't organized their ethics and don't have proper ethics. But so... For example, the principle of non-initiation of physical force is uh, uh, protecting me. And that's why I advocate it, and that's why I defend it. But as opposed to some other people, I realize what the context is, which is normal situations. And in fact, I've never had to be in a situation where I had to uh, initiate physical force against anybody. But so... Um, it's always been normal, and for most people, it'll always be in a normal context. But this principle, the reason why I advocate it, and any other moral principle that I advocate, is because I think and I can pr- that I can prove why defending this principle and implementing this principle is in my own self-interest. It's not just in my self-interest. I think it's in everybody's self-interest. And I think I can show them why it's in their self-interest as well. But I'm doing it because it's in my self-interest. And I don't see a conflict between my self-interest and other people's self-interest because I don't view humans' interests as naturally in conflict. Now you can pick some unusual circumstances where they could be in conflict, but that's not the run-of-the-mill, the general normal situation. And so that's another big difference that people have regarding ethics and principles. Those, these are fundamental issues about what you think is human nature and your relationship between you as a human being and other uh, other individuals. So like predation, for example, you know, if, if it's prevalent, is basically, well, then, you know, there's a natural conflict of interest. If everybody is in a predatory mode, well, you know, their gain is your loss. And so, but this mode of predation, which is the original predominant, theme in human history uh, produced poverty and misery. Didn't really get anywhere. When it was started to transition and be substituted for a superior theme, which is peaceful production and trade, well, we had an explosion of wealth and uh, population and improvement in every area of life. So those are some of the meta-ethic issues that are at the base of uh, political theory where sometimes people disagree. And so then you just have to, you know, discuss, you know, find out where you disagree and why you disagree and then see what facts they're relying on to what they think is a fact that supports their position, what you think is a fact and say, well, is it a fact? So like in the debate, so I would say, well, is it in the debate, is it true that some people will always choose predation? Well, I think so. I think 
some people would say, well, how do you know what the future is going to be? Well, I understand human nature. I think some people can vary in, in percentages, but there's always going to be people that are going to choose predation. So you have to deal with that as a fact. Then, in this anarchy debate, then, well, okay, if there are some people that will always choose predation, what are the consequences of that fact? And then the debate progresses. But it, maybe some people think, no. Some people, there won't always be some people that choose predation. Well, now you have a real difference uh, as to uh, human nature. The reason why some people always choose predation is very simple. The human beings are free, and they can always choose predation as opposed to production and trade. And uh, historically, we have always seen that there's been a percentage of people that have chosen it, and there's no reason to assume that it will ever get to zero. So is that maybe the biggest, was that one of the criticisms of, that you would have of the anarchist position? Do you think that they do not recognize that humans will choose predation and that the system they advocate or the non-system they may advocate will just leave them vulnerable and therefore you think we need to just have at least this limited government to sort of protect everyone against the violation of rights? You know, correct me if I'm wrong at any point, but is that your position? Well, uh, by the way, you know, I recommend as far as uh, my position, I did a, uh, because uh, Mr. Block was unwilling to do the uh, second round. I uh, didn't want to answer any questions, so we couldn't do the second round. I did an analysis of the debate, and I recommend that people watch it because I put in a lot of work and effort into it <laughs> on a topic that isn't high on my list of uh, things to do. But I did, and so in that, one of the key issues, once you accept that there will be predation, then there's two important issues that you have to uh, deal with. If there is going to be predation and there is no government, so you have to see what the situation is now. Now you have a monopoly of major force, military power, that dwarfs by the millions any gang or any group of petty thieves or murderers or criminals force, they cannot go up against the government. They have to run. And their situation will not be improved if they buy a tank or a helicopter, attack helicopter or a bomber or anything. No amount of military hardware that they can purchase helps them be more effective predators and be able to loot more people. That's a fact right now. Because if they had a helicopter, well, it's easier to find them. If they had a tank, oh, great, now we know where you are and you're dead. So this is not helping them, so they don't do it. Now, if you don't have a government, then you have a situation where there's a big incentive for them to have a tank, a helicopter, or a bomber, or a guided missile launcher, or whatever because every amount of military power that they increase is more potential victims for them to rob and extort. So there's a perverse incentive there for predators to arm, to gang up. And that means that the 
everybody else has to go into this arm mini arms race because they don't want to be under uh, the level of uh, of the predator. And there's always going to be a lot of people that are straggling that are not well organized or whatever, and they'll be picked off. And they'll start to learn that they have to ally with other people. The alliances or security forces, uh, agencies, they will have to arm up. And then sometimes there will be miscalculations. So a criminal gang with a certain amount of military hardware thinks they can overpower or take over some uh, security service or whatever. And guess what? The security service says, oh, no, you can't. And there you have a little war. And that little war is happening right over in your neighborhood, not in some other country or wherever. Then the other thing is, with this predation issue, is that you have to deal with foreign predators. And I put it, ask in the debate, what are you going to do when you get this extortion note? Well, okay, so if you have a lot of security services that cannot fight a foreign adversary like North Korea or Russia or whatever, they can't, they can't take them on. They just have to surrender their wealth. Whatever it is, they have to hand it over. And that's the Genghis Khan strategy. Send a little note to the city and say, okay, guys, give me all your gold or I'm going to kill everybody in the city. They don't, the first city did ignore them. He killed everybody in the city. Next city, what are you going to do? So then, the, in the debate, the anarchists, then they say, okay, well, then our security services are going to have, they're going to be able to invade and retaliate and deter with nukes or otherwise military superpowers or military adversaries like North Korea or Russia. Okay, now you have a different problem. And here's the other problem where you get into gang warfare. If you have hundreds of security agencies and they all have hardware, nukes included or not, well, when they have a disagreement and one of them is committed to enforcing their view because they're sure in their heart that they're right, and the other one is also sure in their heart that they're right and they're not going to give up, they have a disagreement, then you can have a civil war. But this time, it's right here in the United States, and everybody gets victimized. And that's the problem with having a diversity of military power inside your country, in one territory. It leads to gang warfare. And the same thing happens with differences of opinion between decent people. They also have security agencies, some of which have committed to arbitration, and then when they get the arbitration award, they actually follow it. Some that aren't committed or get the arbitration award, and they say, guess what? This is so important, I'm not going to follow this. It's against my principles, and so I won't do it. What are you going to do then? And then if the other side decides, well, wait a second, you agreed, and now I'm going to enforce, well, then some of these... It doesn't have to be every dispute. Since the amount of disputes will be increased because there isn't even any clarity about how much war, excuse me, how much, what is the law? Because we are in a litigious uh, society right now. If you put on top of that that there isn't a law that we all agree on in writing, it says this, that, and the other, 
and you say, well, I don't think that should be the law, and uh, oh my God, then you have a multiplicity of disputes. If a very small percentage of them, the party, one or the other party, tries to enforce their view, then the other party says, wait a second, you're using force on me, I'm not going to take this. Then they retaliate, and now you have a little war, a mini civil war, and you have a few of those all over the country, oh, forget it, the country is destroyed. Now your individual rights, tell me what state they're in when you are the victim of collateral damage because you live next door to somebody who disagreed with someone else and they hit your house instead when they threw the guided missile. Well, that situation is so horrible, so horrible, that people have run for it for centuries. They've been even willing to accept statism of the worst sort to avoid that. They fear the state of nature. They dread it. Hobbes called it short and brutish life. This is why they fear it, because it has this potential to unravel into gang warfare and into absolute predation and violence. And so this is what I tried to explain in the debate with not too much luck, uh, let me say, and uh, I explained it again in the uh, analysis. Dan, I really appreciate you coming on today and, and putting this all out there outside of that, because I think a problem with that debate format, and it's good that we do them, but at the same time, it can lead into a lot of, you know, just mini arguments within the debate or get sidetracked. A lot of times you never get to complete your full statement or what have you, which is why you felt the need to go and make that other video and put it out there. So that's kind of... No, I did the other video because he didn't... I thought we should do a round two if the round one wasn't uh, clear and I we had agreed to do a round two, but... Uh, it's not a debate if we don't, if you don't want to answer my questions. Right, yeah, I mean, I actually saw Dr. Block post something saying he wanted to do another round, but you didn't like the proposal, or... Yeah, he did. He said he, he, he had agreed, right, he had agreed to do a round two, but he didn't want to use the format that he had agreed to. I said it in the analysis. He was unwilling to answer any questions, and he wouldn't do it on my channel. So he didn't want to, he didn't like the venue, he didn't like the format, and he wouldn't answer questions. Well, okay, then in that case, we can't have a debate. And, and so, uh, but I, uh, my preference, and I think sometimes in these issues of political theory, which are relatively complicated, so I don't, I don't like, uh, there's, you know, dozens and dozens of, I don't know how many hundreds of anarchists that, uh, always on the internet are challenging me to have a debate and uh, to they ask me one question and they want to, I know it's leading to the next one and to another one and to another. they want to have a debate they want to have an email debate with me and everything and uh, well no this is so complicated that that's why I decided to do and that's why I did I did it for them <laughs> even though they hate me I did it for them I did the debate with some of the leaders of their persuasion because it is complicated. It's political theory. It's not simple. And then in that analysis, you'll see we have basic disagreements about ethics and epistemology. The one on epistemology uh, led to us not having a second round. Basically, that I believe that you have to be willing to answer questions. If you're not willing to answer questions, then you can say, well, I think that's irrelevant. That's not a fair question. I don't like that question. And then you don't prove why it's unfair. I just, I'm just going to discard it. I'm not going to answer. Well, then we're really not having a debate. So I think that this is a complicated issue, 
because political theory is complicated. It involves conclusions about human nature, about ethics, and sometimes even about epistemology. And so I did this uh, analysis there for that reason, and it's, you know, there for whoever wants to find out. And this interview that you, I've had with you, well, I've uh, tried to explain it, uh, as much as possible my position again, and, uh, you know, that's about as much as I can do. I'm disappointed that I'm not getting any points for being willing to engage and to uh, just not say, well, anarchism is crazy. I don't want to even talk about it. Well, that, you took the words out of my mouth, Jan, because that was the what the next thing I was going to say is that you know I appreciate the fact that you and others like Dr. Block and, and Kinsella and Larkin Rose, I'm, I appreciate the fact that people like you guys will take the time out, even if we don't agree on every little minor issue. How are we ever going to agree if we don't do this in the first place, though? You know what I mean? So I'm, I'm glad that you guys are all willing to take the time out of your personal day of your life to put this stuff out there and generate this conversation, because I really think that the area of epistemology of philosophy is you know something we all really need to obviously libertarians are never going to all come to a consensus probably on on some of this stuff but i think it's we need to at least push in that direction and push to a point where we can come to a lot of general agreements on things because if we don't do that how are you ever going to sell you know sort of this quote-unquote libertarian idea i don't even know if you use the term libertarian i think even that term can i do i do uh, use the term libertarian i think it uh, it is it, 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 in my view it, it's about people that believe in individual rights and, and at least from my perspective uh, want a, a limited government and that they don't want the government to run their lives in every other area which is doesn't have to do with the protection of their individual rights and so that's it that's freedom and we agree on so much. I don't mean you and I necessarily, but I just mean, you know, the libertarian sort of community in general. We agree on so much. And yet when we really break it down to philosophy and to principles, there are disagreements. And ultimately, if we don't have a philosophy, a kind of a united philosophy or a coherent philosophy to sell to people, well, how are we ever going to really expand the movement or, you know, expand these ideas without that coherent philosophy? And that's why I appreciate what you're doing, both with your interviews and with the debates you've been doing recently. I think this is the most important thing we can do. Jan, I really appreciate you taking the time to come out and speak with me today, especially to, you know, give me the extra time you have here. Uh, Before I let you go, I really want to give you the opportunity to plug everything you're doing. Where can people find your YouTube channel? everything else you're doing, your documentaries, give everybody the full rundown of how they can find your work and keep in touch with you. They can go to janhelfeld.com, that's J-A-N-H-E-L-F-E-L-D.com, and the same thing, YouTube, Jan Helfeld, that's J-A-N-H-E-L-F-E-L-D, and uh, they can Google me if you want, everything will pop up. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you'll you'll see all sorts of debates and interviews popping up. I uh, I'm gonna have to do that because I haven't done that in years, so I'm gonna see what's what it comes up. Hey, you better be careful before you tell people to start googling. Well, you I don't know. know I have no find. idea what will happen, <laughs> but I know a lot of stuff will come up. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks so much for coming on the show today, Jan. Once again, I really do appreciate it, and you know, keep up the great work you're doing. I think you're you're doing a great service in in so many ways. Thank you for everything, Mark. Thanks for the opportunity. Thanks, Jan. Take care. Bye bye. Well, I gotta say, I have a ton of respect for Jan. You know, he was a guerrilla journalist getting out there, confronting politicians about things. Long before, you know, all the people on YouTube, the We Are Changes of the World, long before anybody else is out there 
doing this kind of thing. Of course, he has a, a slightly different method, slightly different bent than those guys who I think are, are also doing great work. But he kind of laid the groundwork to me for this kind of non-mainstream interviews with politicians. It's, it's the kind of thing we never really saw until, well, as far as I can see, until Jan Helfel started doing it about you know, 20-some-odd years ago. What Jan does with his style of questioning, it's, it's very important because he really tries to get the core of the philosophy behind the positions of all these politicians, you know, and often that exposes the fact that they're, they don't really have a philosophy, they just have positions based on who knows what, all sorts of things from advancing their career to pleasing a certain special interest. Now, and I think this sort of questioning, along with the debates that Mr. Hellfield has been participating in lately, are precisely what libertarians need to be engaging in. Now, Jan believes in a limited government. I've had guests on in the past that believe in no government whatsoever. But either way, no matter what system or non-system even you advocate for, what's most important is the philosophy behind these ideas. If we all genuinely, at least in our own way, believe in individual liberty, we should be able to discuss why that is and the logical implications of that. My views have certainly evolved over the years, And I know many people that are now very friendly to libertarianism that were not always taught that way. They didn't always think that way. They grew up in a more traditional environment, maybe a a Democratic household or, like myself, a Republican household. They were very entrenched, like most of us were for, you know, most of our lives in the left-right paradigm. It's either this way and it fits into this right-wing position or you're a lefty and you're a progressive and it's one of those, you know. We're we're really breaking out of that. (laughs) And that's really the first step to me. But now that we're out of that, or at least a lot of us are, and hopefully we can break a lot more other people out of it, we're certainly not out of it as a whole, as a society, but for the people that are, now we got to get to the nitty-gritty of this stuff. Now we got to think about why. You know, why? What is so wrong with the left-right paradigm? What are the positions mixed in there that are wrong and why? And we also need to be very open to having our views challenged. You know, some people would call this infighting, but I would just call it working out very important differences in philosophy. And if we don't have a consistent philosophy, how are libertarians and people that believe in individual liberty supposed to communicate it effectively to others? That's what I intend to keep doing here, pushing the ideas behind the positions, the ideas behind the ideas, both on this show and over at LionsofLiberty.com, and I hope you all stick around for the ride, and until next time, live long and live free. (laughs) 